Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my frequently misinterpreted friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about confidence intervals, symmetric and asymmetric, asymptotic and bootstrap, how to interpret them, and how not to interpret them. Along the way, we also mention tire pressure gauge mystery, conference travel reimbursement, phases of the moon, gyroscopic effects, baseball walk of shame, why people hate us, settling out of court, confidence trick, Mac Jacardle, Shakespearean means, lipstick on a pig, the cat rating scale, the Miller's tale, hot pokers, inverse hyperbolic tangent, duh, and quantitude outtakes. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Did I tell you I figured out the tire pressure thing? (laughs) I know that was really bugging you. (laughs) Greg came down and visited here, and somehow the conversation turned to things that we don't understand but should. (laughs) And the one that vexed me to no end was the tire pressure gauge on your car. Mm -hmm. Two of my cars are 18 years old, but the third one is not. And yes, I have three cars because I have twin teenagers. Uh And the non-18-year-old car, like many that have been made in the last 10 years, have a little indicator on the dash that show if you have a low tire pressure. It's very handy. It's very cool. But the vexing thing is there is no monitor in the tire of pressure. There is no electric link of the tire to the car. And I could not figure out how does the car know? Exactly. How does it know? And I had to finally concede and I Googled it. And it is one of the most clever things that I have seen. An engineer out there in the world deserves a beer over this one. (laughs) If all four tires are the same pressure, they rotate at the same RPMs. If one tire is at a slightly different pressure, there is an asymmetry in the rotation of the tires. The car computer registers the asymmetry and lights up the warning because it believes if one tire is turning at a different rate that it must be low in air. That is how it knows. Mm -hmm. Now, I had two immediate thoughts. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I know what one of them was. Go ahead. (laughs) All right. Well, one is, that's really clever. Uh Two is, if I let air out of your Prius tires (laughs) for all four, you would never know. Never know. (laughs) Because there's no asymmetry. It's a total design flaw. Is that the cleverest thing, though? Kudos to you, because there are some things that I probably should figure out, but I just don't. Like the tire pressure one, you probably could have lived without knowing, except it would just eat at you. Here's an example here at work, and I probably shouldn't admit what I'm about to admit. (laughs) It used to be the case that when I would go on a trip for a conference, (laughs) I would just hand copies of the receipts to somebody, they would process it, and I would get reimbursed. But now, to save time, they have a giant electronic system (laughs) that's called Concur that I find so non-intuitive that last year I put in a travel request following the 18-minute webinar that (laughs) told me how to do it. And then when I got back from the trip, I found the reimbursement process so cumbersome that I just paid for the damn trip myself. (laughs) 
I just said, I know I'm a smart person, but I don't want to spend four hours figuring out which boxes to check. So there might be people out there who use Concur who go, uh, dumbass, it's not that hard. I just couldn't bring myself to figure it out. I know that I'm capable. I just said it is not worth the money to me to do it. So I <laughs> I am paying for my own conferences currently, and that's the, co- <laughs> that's the cost of my ignorance. So now you're introducing a new dimension because my tire pressure thing, it just took 22 seconds of Googling. Mm-hmm. Now, even if somebody describes it to you, can you understand it? Because you know what mine is? The phases of the moon. Ooh. All right, listeners, I don't know how many of you have gone out and looked up, and there's like a beautiful crescent moon. Mm -hmm. And if you're lucky and it's in the fall, Venus is right by it. It is beautiful and it is amazing. And I can't describe to a (laughs) five-year-old why the moon is a crescent. All right, now, before you email me a website that describes it, Uh I want to clarify, I did go to fifth grade. (laughs) I did do the side project where there was the lamp with the light and you had the earth and the moon and you turned it and sometimes the moon went into the shadow. And Okay. Yeah. I just want to clarify for the record. I got that training. Okay. Okay. I look up at a beautiful crescent moon and I have no freaking idea where the rest of the moon went. Hi, I'm Jeff Foxworthy and we are giving grownups the chance to win one million dollars. They are smarter than a fifth grader. It is that easy. So I was trained as a secondary math and science teacher. And so I am supposed to know things like how the phases of the moon work. I am also supposed to know things like, how come you don't fall over on a bicycle? (laughs) If you stand on a bicycle, still, you fall over. But you start rolling and you don't fall over. And I can say the words, well, there's a gyroscopic effect. I don't know why a bicycle doesn't fall over. Can you explain to me why a bicycle doesn't fall over? Well, there's a gyroscopic uh, (laughs) element to it. Exactly. So I I just don't even understand how I function from day to day. We all wonder that. Yeah. Bicycles, emotions, parenting, marriage, small talk at parties. I'll just throw this on the pile of things that I, <laughs> that no matter how much I try to learn about it, I don't really understand. Before we start exposing our souls of everything we don't understand in life, let's narrow it down because we are eyeballs deep in stats and quant. I will cut to the quick and give you the all-time moon phase equivalent in statistics. Okay. Which is, we've been taught it, we've been taught it repeatedly- We have not always been taught it correctly, and despite our best efforts, maybe don't fully understand it. That's my phases of the moon. Mm -hmm. Confidence intervals. Oh, totally. No matter how many times you explain it, people just can't get a good handle on confidence intervals. And by people, us too. Oh, there are textbooks that are supposed to be explaining this to people that make mistakes in terms of understanding and communicating about confidence intervals. This is a widespread challenge for people, smart people. You know, now that we're in the new year, we're approaching spring training for baseball, right? (laughs) It all comes back to baseball. All comes back to baseball. Swing and drive! Belton right! Welcome to the show! Okay. <laughs> it makes me think about umpires and calling strikes and balls. 
I was at a job talk where in a period of 30 seconds, the individual struck out three swings and a miss in confidence interval related things. <laughs> okay. They were well-trained, they were well-credentialed, and they struck out on three straight pitches. I don't bring this up in being self-righteous ourselves, but I bring it up in saying these are the things we want to pick away a little bit at our discussion. Mm -hmm. So it's opening day, the leadoff hitter is going up. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, please direct your attention to the Wrigley Field pitchers now for tonight's first pitcher. The candidate put up on the screen a little bar graph with just a single histogram. It had a band around it. There was a little high point and a little low point. Mm -hmm. And they gave the classic misinterpretation, which is there is a 95% chance the population mean falls between these two values. Swing and a miss. Strike one. Then they extended the graph to have a second histogram that also had a confidence interval. Uh -huh. It was a pre and a post test. Mm -hmm. 98 mile hour fastball right across the plate. On the outside yeah, corner, got him looking. Strike two. Whiff. Finally, they said because the two confidence <laughs> intervals overlapped in the graph, no. there was not a significant difference. Oh, two now. Strike three, call. Strike three. You're out. Walk of shame back to the dugout. Uh -huh. <laughs> and the point is not us saying, oh, how self-righteous is that? Yeah. Because I still can't describe to you why there's a perfect crescent of a moon, even <laughs> though I went to fifth grade. But what it highlights is this is really freaking hard. It is. I really appreciate your clarification, too. I don't ever want to communicate that, oh, silly person. These are hard concepts and the translation between probability and confidence and all of that is very, very tricky. And we as a field are part of the problem because we are not necessarily doing a great job of communicating this. So just to make sure everybody's on the same page, maybe we should start with what a confidence interval is. And, <laughs> and I will take the risk of interpreting the confidence interval if only to have you poke at me for getting it wrong. How about that? I was going to say, I'm glad you picked up the ball on this because maybe I can finally figure it out. Okay. Let's start with the idea that this is going to be a way to estimate a particular parameter in the population. Could be a mean, could be a correlation, could be an indirect effect, could be a variety of different things. There exists some population parameter of interest. And when we get a sample of data, we have a statistic that is a point estimate of that parameter. And we know from one sample to the next that that point estimate will bounce around the population parameter. It's not going to be exactly equal to it. It tends to be a little bit closer more often. It tends to be farther away a little bit less often. And for many statistics, not all of them, but for many statistics, we know what the sampling behavior is. For sample means, for example, we know what the sampling behavior is. We know how they bounce around the population mean, and we can compute a standard error for that. A confidence interval is going to put some fuzz around that sample estimate. For example, if we want to estimate where the population mean is, we take our sample mean and that fuzz around it is based on the standard error of the mean or an estimate of the standard error of the mean. And what we will typically do is say, well, because the sample mean doesn't tend 
tend to get more than around two standard errors away from the population mean, let's take our sample mean and reach above about two standard errors, below about two standard errors, and create what we would call an interval estimate. It is an interval estimate for where the population parameter is, in this case, the population mean. And if we knew the true standard error, we would reach out 1.96 standard errors using the critical Z. If we only had an estimated standard error, we would reach out some critical T number of standard errors. So I'm just using two as a rough example here. But in the end, we have a 95% confidence interval that is an interval estimate of where the population parameter is, in this case, the population mean. Not a 95% probability, but a 95% confidence. And the term confidence gets used because of all the confidence intervals I could construct around all the sample means that I could have gotten for all the samples that I could have drawn, 95% of these intervals would capture the population parameter. And so I say that I am 95% confident in this specific interval because I know the long-run expected behavior of confidence intervals, and that's what makes me what we call 95% confident in this particular interval. Am I close? <laughs> Please tell me I'm close. If we're going to use the baseball analogy, walk off grand slam of why people hate us. The 2-2 pitch. It's true. It's true. The confidence interval is vexing. It is one of the most obtuse things. Mm -hmm. Listeners, we just had a six or eight minute argument. <laughs> Shh, don't tell them. I am going to tell them. I gave an interpretation of the confidence interval <laughs> and Greg raised his hand and he said, is that right? And we just argued where we made a deal where I would not use the word probability, but I would use the word confidence. We settled out of court. We settled out of court. <laughs> Sidebar, Your Honor. <laughs> this stuff is really hard. Yeah. So let's say that you have a sample mean estimate of three, and the 95% confidence interval is between two and four. The key is, is what is the proper interpretation of that? I am going to give the incorrect interpretation that we commonly, commonly see, and that I have been guilty of myself. Mm -hmm. There is a 95% chance that the population mean falls between two and four. That is the incorrect interpretation. First, analytically, that's not what's happening. Second, it doesn't make logical sense because the population mean from a frequentist perspective is a fixed value. It can't probabilistically vary. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make logical sense to think about that. All right, so that is the incorrect. Here's what Greg and I just argued about for half a dozen minutes. What is the proper? And this is what the out-of-court settlement landed on. I am 95% confident that my interval of two to four contains the population mean. Are we still good with that? Let <laughs> me check with my attorney. Greg just covered his microphone and they had that, you know, whisper, 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 and then came back. <laughs> okay, so far. All right, so I'm going to compare those side by side. Okay. Incorrect. There's a 95% chance the population mean falls between two and four. Correct. I am 95% confident that the interval from two to four contains the population mean. People hate us. They hate yep. us. They hate us. 
This goes back to the very first presentation of this from Jersey Neiman. We've raised a number of times David Salzberg's book, The Lady Tasting Tea. Wonderful. We highly, highly recommend it to anybody who does this for a living. And it's one of those books that even if you don't do it for a living, it's absolutely fascinating. But it's history of statistics. He has a chapter. I'm holding it right in front of me. Mm -hmm. Chapter 12, and it's called The Confidence Trick. (laughs) Jersey Neiman, who's not only a titan in the field, but sounded like an absolutely wonderful human being. Mm -hmm. In 1934, Neiman gave a talk to the Royal Statistical Society, and it was called On the Two Different Aspects of the Representative Method. There was an appendix, and in the appendix, he proposed the confidence interval. Mm -hmm. So he called it a confidence interval, and the bands he called confidence bounds. Mm -hmm. All right, so he gave the paper, and then the chair of the committee got up to comment on the paper, And Salzburg quotes here, and the chair says, I am not certain whether to ask for an explanation or to cast a doubt. And then he goes on and he says, I'm referring to Dr. Neiman's confidence intervals. I am not at all sure that the confidence is not a confidence trick. All right, now the confidence interval at this point is like five minutes old. Right. right? This is 90 (laughs) years back, Uh five minutes old. And he goes on and he says, does it really lead us toward what we need? The chance that in the universe, which we are sampling the proportion, is within these certain limits. I think it does not. Mm -hmm. This is a difficulty I have felt since the method was first proposed. Five minutes ago? Okay, five minutes ago. But (laughs) like here is Neiman and the guy's name is Bowley. Okay. It is 90 years ago and they're having the same issue with what this represents. I love that the discussant's response is part of that record. We don't tend to do that anymore, right? We have papers that are put out there on some repository, but whatever the crazy, dumb stuff that the discussant says, and let's be clear, I've been the crazy, dumb discussant on many occasions, so maybe it's a good thing. I would love actually to have the record of those kinds of comments now. I would if the discussant actually got the papers in time for the panel, (laughs) because I have been a discussant Uh and a titan in the field who will go unnamed Uh handed me his paper as we sat down. Yeah, I hate that. Thanks, Jack McCardle. (laughs) But I will not name who it is. Rhymes with Mac Jacardle. Here's a visual of how I like to teach it. And a lot of people do it this way. This is not unique. But we're going to do a little mind's eye. Picture a normal distribution. Mm -hmm. Beautiful little bell curve at the top of a page. That's going to be a sampling distribution of a sample mean. All right, now, the middle of that distribution is the population mean. We're going to drop a vertical line the whole length of the way down the page. All right, so we got a beautiful normal distribution at the top and a vertical line that goes from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. Now, imagine that we drew 100 samples Mm -hmm. independently of a given sample size, computed the mean of that sample, and then we computed the confidence interval for that, which Greg alluded to earlier, tends to be about plus or minus two standard errors. Mm -hmm. Now, we do that 100 times and we start just putting those on each row. Number one is first, number two is second, number three is third. All right, all the way down to 100. Mm -hmm. And picture there's this vertical line. A hundred of these are a little dot that's the sample mean, and then we have the whiskers that represent the lower bound and the upper bound of the confidence interval. 95 of those 100 intervals will overlap that vertical line. Obviously, on average, 
That is, the population mean falls within that confidence interval. Five of those do not. Mm -hmm. So now you've got a hundred of these confidence intervals. For your sample, you are randomly picking one of those. Mm -hmm. I'm going to shake them all up in a hat and you're going to reach in and pull out a confidence interval. Well, 95 of them cover the vertical line, five of them do not, you can be 95% confident that your interval that you drew was one of those that covered that line. You cannot say there's a 95% chance the population mean falls within that interval. That's right. It's either in there or it's not in there. And you can just look at it in the beautiful visual that Patrick conjured up. Once you nail one of those intervals down, it either has that vertical line contained in it or it doesn't. And that's where the probability thing becomes a little bit challenging, right? When we say there's a 95% probability, no, it's either in there or it's not. It's not bouncing around in a frequentist perspective. The mean is the mean is the mean or whatever the parameter is. Shakespeare said that. (laughs) Is not the mean a mean by any other name, I think? (laughs) That's my recollection, at least. In measure for measure, I think. (laughs) There are a lot of tangible benefits of working in academia generating knowledge, teaching students, having a job you can't be fired from. Those are tangible. There's some intangible ones. And one of the intangible is our God-given right for self-righteous indignation. (laughs) And we exercise this on a daily, if not hourly basis. Mm -hmm. Confidence intervals, we are eyeball deep on self-righteous indignation. Because up to this point, the self-righteous indignation has focused around the proper interpretation of a confidence interval. Which, by the way, you and I completely failed, given the six or eight minutes of arguing about it. But there's also the self-righteous indignation about using the confidence intervals. Mm -hmm. We're not even going to worry our pretty little head that we can't interpret it correctly, but that person bad, if you use a critical ratio, person good, if you use a confidence interval. Right. We get this a lot. What is a critical ratio? We take a point estimate, we divide by a standard error, and we get a critical ratio, and then we look up in our tables back in the day of what is the probability that we would have observed a value that larger, larger, if the null hypothesis were true. And we get a P, all right? And just for simplicity, we're going to say, is the P less than 05? Is the P greater than 05? Mm -hmm. That's the critical ratio. All right, so for decades, people have said, Dr. Hancock, you are a horrible, (laughs) horrible person because you took a point estimate and divided it by a standard error. That's the reason? Okay, now I know. Well, I'm on volume three, (laughs) subsection four. (laughs) Okay. You would be a much better person if instead of taking the point estimate and dividing it by the standard error, you took the point estimate and added and subtracted two times the standard error. (laughs) It's totally different. That's my point. Totally different. A confidence interval is simply taking our point estimate and adding and subtracting two times the standard error or whatever that critical value would be given other parts of your study. Yeah. All right. So what drives me a little crazy is you're horrible if you divide by a standard error, but you're a better person if you add and subtract a couple of standard errors. Why is that? Well, often what people do is compute a confidence interval, and then they see if zero lies within it or whatever the value is under your null hypothesis. And what it is is just slapping lipstick on the pig of inferential testing. (laughs) 
which is I am not going to take a ratio of a point estimate to a standard error and see if the P is less than 05. I'm going to compute a confidence interval and see if it contains zero. Hate to break it to you. You got a pig without the lipstick. You got a pig with the lipstick. It's the same pig. Mm -hmm. The point of the confidence interval is to give a sense of what that variability is, the range. Yeah. So I like that it introduces the lack of confidence or the presence of confidence, I guess, however you have it, in the original metric, but I'm going to go full old man Muppet mode on you. Mm -hmm. Our metrics are so dumb I don't even want the confidence in the original metric because it's some mean of eight ordinal items, kind of like my cat, <laughs> neither like my cat or not like my cat, very much like my cat. Uh -huh. I don't even want to know what that interval is. And it was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. I was terrible. Get him away. Hey, boo. Boo. Absolutely true. When your outcome measure is in a meaningful metric, right? If we were talking about improving SAT scores and you gave me a confidence interval for how much SAT scores improve, that's useful for me because I speak SAT scores. But so many metrics we use are not meaningful and or they were homebrewed specifically for this study and I don't really know what to do with it. And I appreciate the idea of emphasizing the importance of intervals to be able to provide more information about estimation, but it's not really doing much unless we have that specific metric. So I'm with you on that. Before Twitter yells at us, we are not advocating against the confidence interval. Oh my gosh, no. We are a major, major supporter of the confidence interval. To be clear. To be clear. What we are saying, though, is don't allow a reviewer, an editor, an advisor, a student, your spouse, Gus the dog, to shame you for not using confidence intervals because it says your mean falls between 2 and 14 on a metric that nobody, nobody cares can <laughs> interpret or care about. But what it does do is... For those of you in middle school who read the Canterbury Tales and was it the Miller's Tale where somebody gets poked in the arse <laughs> with a hot poker and everybody giggled and giggled and giggled? That's right. There were like two tales that were sufficiently ribbled for us to actually take interest in. So this is going to be like a Miller's Tale. Some lit major out there is screaming at their car yeah. dashboard right It was the right Reeves now. Tale. It was, it was the no, Reeves Tale. it was tale. the Miller's Tale. Hello, this is Sir David Attenborough. Huge quantitude fan, by the way. Even if these two morons wouldn't know literature if it hit them right in the face. Here is an excerpt from that ribald medieval classic, The Miller's Tale, by Geoffrey Chaucer. And so he opened window hastily and put his arse out thereat quietly over the buttocks, showing the whole bum. And thereto said this clerk, this Absalom, Oh, speak, sweet bird, I know not where thou art. This Nicholas just then let fly a fart as loud as it had been a thunderclap and well-nigh blinded Absalom, poor chap. But he was ready with his iron hot, and Nicholas right in the arse he got. It is a hot poker in the arse to make us think about not having a go-no-go, no go, is P less than 05 or not, but there is a range of values that would equally represent this relation, and we need to be aware of that. Now, the thing with the metric... Yes, there's SAT, there are a number of drinks consumed in the prior seven days. There are many things that are in an original metric, yeah. but there are some things like, say, a correlation or a regression coefficient that 
now we're cooking with gas. Oh, yeah. So all the things that we've been talking about, anytime we say, oh, you have plus or minus two standard errors around it, that assumes that there's a symmetry that is meaningful for the statistic that we're talking about, right? Take the correlation coefficient, for example. We know that correlation coefficients can't exceed one. If the true correlation in the population rho, R-H-O, rho, is 0.7, and we draw samples from that population, let's say samples of size 20 or 30, then the sample correlation coefficients are going to fluctuate below that true value of rho a lot more than they're going to fluctuate above that true value of rho because there's simply a ceiling above that 0.7, right? That ceiling is 1. And what we do to deal with that in the correlation world is we transform that correlation coefficient using that Fisher Z prime transformation, which is really just an inverse hyperbolic tangent. Duh. Duh. <laughs> I mean, it's like phases of the moon, easy. So you just, you're just taking the upper end of the distribution of correlation coefficients and you're stretching it out past one so you get more symmetry. Then you build a symmetric confidence interval around your transformed values, and then you back transform it, and you get an asymmetric confidence interval. So there are a number of statistics that really don't subscribe to the symmetry, and we have to be a lot more sensitive to that in the construction of our confidence interval. That's how a correlation coefficient is typically handled. But there are many other statistics that simply don't bounce around in a symmetric way. Variances, for example, don't randomly fluctuate in a symmetric kind of way. So we have to be sensitive in our interval estimates to that asymmetry. Okay, wise guys, so fix it. (laughs) Ah, well, there are different ways to fix it, right? One is... When you have some knowledge about the way the thing ought to be fluctuating, like we know sample variances fluctuate in a way that is better described by chi-square distributions. And by the way, chi-square distributions with enough degrees of freedom are fairly normal. We also know that correlation coefficients, even though they don't fluctuate normally, when you get big enough sample sizes, even if rho is 0.7, the sample correlations are going to stay pretty tight to that 0.7, and they will be fairly symmetric. So I don't want to be like on my high horse about this. When we have the mathematical knowledge for how things should actually be distributed, then we can build a confidence interval that formally takes that asymmetry into account. But I would say more often we pull it straight out of our butt and Miller's <laughs> tail. <laughs> I defer to you on hot pokers in the arse. Fair enough. The way we usually pull it out of our arse is with bootstrapping. And you and I have talked about bootstrapping in the past, but the idea of bootstrapping is that you are going to treat the sample of data you have as like this microcosm of the population. And assuming that's true, assuming that the sample you have is fairly representative of the population, then what we will often do is reach into that sample of your data and draw a sample from it. If there are 100 cases in your sample, then we will reach in there and draw out 100 cases. But we do it with replacement, so we, <laughs> we don't just keep getting the same sample over and over. That was the phase of the moon for me when I first <laughs> learned bootstrapping. Uh-huh. And the self-righteous indignation as I was like, but you're doing nothing but yes. drawing the same sample as if Efron didn't understand 
understand that <laughs> it is with replacement. Yes, with replacement. <laughs> so for each one of these bootstrap samples, I get an estimate of whatever the parameter of interest is. Maybe the parameter of interest is a variance or a correlation coefficient or a regression coefficient or an indirect effect. And if I do a thousand bootstrap resamples from my original sample, then I will get a thousand estimates of the parameter that I'm interested in. And I can make a distribution of all of those bootstrap parameter estimates, all of those bootstrapped estimates of the variance or a correlation or a regression coefficient or an indirect effect. Now, I have this distribution. The simplest thing that people will do is they will just say, well, great, let me pick some percentile values in that bootstrap distribution. And if I wanted a 95% confidence interval, I would go down to the two and a half percentile and figure out what the value is. I would go up to the 97 and a half percentile and pick that value. And then I would have a percentile bootstrap confidence interval that would almost certainly be asymmetric around whatever estimate I have. I love that because that's the rage Hulk. Totally. Sexy Hulk is going to do the calculus make assumptions about the asymptotic distribution and is going to give those confidence bounds of where they would be expected in the long run given regularity conditions. Rage Hulk. Dr. Banner, now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. Rage Hulk is doing a thousand of these, gathering them all together, and says, what's the lowest 2.5%, what's the highest 2.5%, which, of course, don't have to be equal distances if you have an asymmetric distribution. I really like two things about this. One is just the DIY in the garage with Green Day and Coors Light <laughs> to build that sampling distribution. Welcome to <laughs> but the other is, as you already alluded to, we can put a confidence interval around damn near anything. Yep. A mean, a correlation, a regression coefficient. You alluded to the indirect effect. Well, that's a product of normal random variables. That's what we think about when we have a regression coefficient from a predictor to a mediator and a regression coefficient from the mediator to the outcome. And the indirect effect is the product of those. Well, analytically, that's not normally distributed. It is asymmetric. So that's a way of doing that. But there have been papers written about bootstrapping fit indices within the structural equation modeling. Sure. It's a little bit, hey, we can stay with the baseball analogy. If you build it, they will come. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. Baseball has marked the time. People will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. <laughs> Give me a point estimate and the vast majority of the time I can build a confidence interval around it. Now, what is the Miller's tail hot poker in the arse? You still got to interpret it correctly. There's not a 95% chance your population mean falls between those two values. It's still a confidence interval in the usual way, but now we're allowing for it to not necessarily be plus or minus 1.96. 
And I have to say, in the bootstrap confidence intervals, there's a little extra asterisk next to the interpretation because, as I said, it assumes that the sample that you have is really representative of the data that you have in the population. We know that that's not necessarily true, right? Because samples vary, especially when you have small samples. You could get a sample that's a little bit over here or a little bit over there. It could have some unusual distributional properties in the sample that aren't represented in the population as a whole. So when we talk about interpretations of confidence intervals in that sexy Hulk asymptotic kind of way, that is because we've done the math. We know what the expected behavior is. But when I am basing everything on the sample of 30 observations, then eh, I'm a little bit more uncomfortable. I don't even <laughs> I don't even know what 95% confidence means exactly there, right? And so some people actually strike the word confidence from that label altogether and we'll just call it a percentile interval. But even those percentile-based confidence intervals, there are challenges associated with those. We don't need to get into the weeds on this, but there are what's sometimes called bias-corrected bootstrap intervals because there tends to be a little bit of skewness in the bootstrap distribution. So it's a little bit less clear where the cut point is for the two and a half percentile, especially if you don't have a lot of information going into that distribution. So there are corrections for this, which make a lot of sense for some things, less sense for other things. In fact, there's a very nice paper by Tristan Tibby and our friend Amanda Montoya at UCLA about how maybe bias corrections to these bootstrap confidence intervals might not work so well in the context of indirect effects. But all things said, the bootstrap-based confidence intervals, or what we could just call percentile intervals, are a really nice way to start to get an interval estimate on a parameter that we care about, whatever that parameter might be. I've got some good news. Okay. While you were talking. <laughs> you were doing something else. I reheated my poker. Okay. <laughs> Let's pretend that we understand confidence intervals, and let's pretend we interpret them correctly. Nobody can use these visually in a way that makes sense, because it gets even more complicated in graphics. Mm -hmm. Imagine you have a sample mean, and you have a dot for that sample mean, and people will put whiskers around it. There will be a little line with a horizontal top and a little line with a horizontal bottom. We have all seen a thousand of these. All right. First, some people, the length of that whisker, it's a standard deviation of the measure. Yeah. Some people, it is the standard error of the mean. And some people, it is the confidence interval. Yeah. Those are all three different. Yep. A person who has made massive contributions to this over a lot of years is a guy named Jeff Cumming. He is at La Trobe University, and I've never met him, but he has some YouTube videos that he seems like a very likable person. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's his accent. <laughs> Let's get some p-values. Let's visit the p-value casino for significance roulette. Do you want to do his accent for us? I <laughs> We be overestimating p-values. Jeff! Jeff! <laughs> For people new to the show, that is the only voice I do. 
we will put up a whole bunch of papers on this. He has written a whole lot to it. But one that I love is the lead author is Sarah Bellia, Fiona Fiddler, Jennifer Williams, Jeff Cumming. It's 2005 Psych Methods, Researchers Misunderstand Confidence Intervals and Standard Error Bars. There you go. I don't even have to read the paper. Who it's needs like a paper? done and done. <laughs> There's another one he has in Statistics and Medicine, Inference by Eye, Reading the Overlap of Independent Confidence intervals. All right, so the poker in the arse here is we throw it on a graphic and people routinely misinterpret these. And they should. Yep. All right, I want you to picture two independent sample means. All right, so we have group one, group two. They're independent, it's not pre-post. Let's say it's a control group and treatment group. The means are different, the confidence intervals, and we'll go ahead in the graphic and use a confidence interval. Here is my pop quiz for listeners. If you have two independent means, one is higher than the other, and the lower confidence interval for the higher mean just touches the upper confidence interval for the lower mean, Mm -hmm. given approximately equal sample size and other assumptions are met, what are the p-values that go with that? Ooh. The vast majority of people said the p-value is 0.05. It's actually 0.05. Oh, six. If they just touch. Now, how many job talks, how many student presentations, how many articles have you read where two confidence intervals overlap and the person said there are not significant differences? That is an incorrect interpretation. Cumming and his co-authors show that you can actually have almost half a whisker's length of a confidence interval overlap which represents about one standard error, Mm -hmm. half a length overlap between two independent means, and that still be significant, P less than 05. So the Miller's tale continues with, you can have two independent means that have confidence intervals that overlap and still be significantly different from one another. Yep. Is it any wonder people hate us? (laughs) And everything that you just described occurs not just in our statistics classes, not just in our research presentations, but in day-to-day things that the public encounters that they have even less chance of understanding, right? During polling of an election, when they say this candidate has 30% of the vote, plus or minus two, you're like, wait a minute, is that a standard deviation? Is that a standard error? Is that a confidence interval? I don't know. And then when they put that confidence interval around this candidate and then the other candidate and they start saying, oh, it's a dead heat, it's just all so crazy confusing. So what are your takeaway points about all of this without hot pokers in the arse? Oh, then I got nothing. (laughs) Current out. (laughs) I think my point is we need confidence intervals. I think they serve a purpose like everything else in that they augment a more holistic description of your findings. In my own work, I try to present a point estimate, a standard error, a critical ratio, a p-value, and a confidence interval. Then the onus of responsibility is on me to not say there's a 95% chance that the population mean is between two and four. Unfortunately, the tortured interpretation 
I am 95% confident that my interval of 2 to 4 contains the population mean. You can't repeat over and over and over again. But imagine a table where you have all of that information and you can have a significant effect, but say, dang, that is a country mile wide. Yeah. We had a prior episode with Pascal Sheeran about meta-analysis, and one of his laments was people do not report enough information in a given study. Right. I think this is to what we aspire. I think the more 30,000-foot view is if you can build it, we can put a confidence interval around it. So we talked about Annie's flower shop with laser cannons a year or two ago, <laughs> uh -huh. which is building parameters that we really want. If you can build a parameter, we can put a confidence interval around it, and we should put a confidence interval around it. Absolutely, we should. Whether it's a regression estimate or an indirect effect or a correlation coefficient or an estimate of reliability, all of these things, in the spirit of statistical significance versus practical significance, the interval around it helps us to understand a bit more practical significance. So absolutely. To be clear, Patrick, are we in favor of confidence we intervals? We are in favor <laughs> of pre-registering confidence <laughs> intervals. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Take care. All right. See ya. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your cacophonous and indecipherable audio to distract you from the presidential primaries. And please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter X. We are at Quantitude Pod. And check out our webpage at quantitudepod.org for searchable archives, playlists, show notes, a syllabus that organizes episodes under class topics, and other cool stuff. Finally, you can prepare for the start of the 2024 baseball season, which will begin March 28th between the Cubs and the Rangers, with Quantitude-themed merch at redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg-authorized products go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, incorrectly interpreted since 2019. Quantitude has been brought to you by... Excuse me, if I may... Sir Attenborough? What can I do for you today? And just exactly how did you get in here? I could try to explain it, but perhaps it would be wiser for me if I spare us all the excruciating futility. Indeed, in that spirit, I do feel that I have an ethical obligation to the listeners of Quantitude to try to explicate precisely just how moronic you two truly are. Um... With sincere gratitude to my anonymous inside informant, and in exchange for a handful of craisins, I have obtained the raw audio files that you two charlatans excised from the final version of the episode in a vain yet completely transparent attempt to appear more intelligent than you actually are. That damn monkey. Well, I assure you that the monkey would fare much better in an exchange of witty repartee than you two unarmed buffoons. Thank you, Sir David. For the record, I'm a lemur. Aren't you a biologist? Oh, for the love of... And now, dear listeners, please enjoy the following excerpts from the actual recording, which were ever so conveniently deleted during the final editing of this marginally engaging episode. I bid you all a good day. 
there is a 95% chance <clears throat> that you're going to question my interpretation. Uh, you're giving me that look. I, I, the, what was the first one that you gave? I don't know that that's correct. So how would you interpret it? Um, because 95% of confidence intervals I could construct. You have no idea. Well, no, it's either in there or it's not. And that's where it gets kind of hinky. I don't care. Yeah. How do I interpret that? Let's say I flip a coin. Would you be comfortable by saying there's a 50% chance this coin is heads? Um, I think what we're talking about is expectation versus a given sample interval. Would you agree with that? Could you say those words again? Now let's say, and we're still off mic, I have a confidence interval from two to four centered around three. Give me the most precise definition of that you're capable of. I don't f- know. <laughs> <laughs> but we edit it like we knew all along. 